All right, let's do this. How are you, what the fuckers? What the fuck, buddies? What the fucking ears? What the fuck sticks? What the fuckstables? What the fuckadelics? What the fucksters? Did I say that one? Doesn't matter. How are you? Wow, Mr. Radio Voice today. Doesn't matter. How are you? I am Mark Marin. Welcome to the show. It's great to have you all here. You know, I was thinking, God damn, make me stop it. Make me stop it. Thank you for listening. This is WTF. I am Mark Marin. I appreciate you being here. I got some things to say. I got some things to tell you right out of the gate. One is, and this is an apology to those of you who purchased tickets for my April 4th performance at the Tulalip. Am I saying it right? Tulalip. Tulalip Casino in Marysville, Washington, outside of Seattle. I had to reschedule that gig for a couple weeks later. The Tulalip Casino gig that I was uh, scheduled for on the 4th is now on the 18th. And they will honor those tickets that you got on the 4th. It's just, folks, I apologize. I'm a moron. All right? I am a moron because uh, it's my nephew's bar mitzvah on that day. I'll be honest with you. That was it. And was that in my schedule? No. Was my casino gig in my schedule? Yes. Why wasn't the bar mitzvah in the schedule? I don't know. I guess somewhere in the back of my head, I was like, nah, that's not that important. A once in a lifetime thing. I mean, a bar mitzvah. You got to go to those things. They're not like weddings. They, you don't do them twice. You don't get bar mitzvah once and then fuck it up. You know, and 10 years later, you go have another bar mitzvah. I guess you could get re-bar mitzvah, but that's a once in a lifetime thing. And the kid is going to do it. He's going to get up there. He's going to read from the arcane text that he doesn't understand. We're all going to be excited about it. And uh, you can give him some presents. And, uh, you know, traditionally say he's a man, though that that really is not true. But it's one of those once-in-a-lifetime things, and I fucked up. So I apologize. I apologize to the Tula Lip Casino, and I apologize to the people who are holding tickets, and I hope you can make the reschedule. So, uh, again, apologies, and you can, uh, you can purchase tickets there at, uh, through my website. I will make it up to you. I promise to do an extra 10 minutes of stuff that's unformed and undeveloped, and we can work through it together. If that doesn't sound like a big evening out at a casino, I don't know what the hell does. I'm slipping into radio voice again. Maybe it's time. I don't know. Maybe I need to reevaluate. Who am I? What is happening? Yeah, but I was a little saddened by the whole thing that uh, it's taken me this long to learn how to prioritize important moments in my family's life. I, I, you know, I missed my brother's wedding, the second one, the, you know, the optional wedding. I went to the first one, the uh, required wedding, felt bad about that. I've missed uh, I've missed I've missed funerals. You know, that's a one that that only happens once. That's one of the few things that really happens once unless there's some horrible mistake or there's a mystery that needs to be solved. You know, I need to show up because you're not just showing up for you. You're showing up for everybody else. You're showing up for your family. Why wasn't that important to me? Why was I so selfish? I think we've answered that question at least 300 times on this show. Tom Arnold is on the show today. And it's very interesting. The reaction that I that people uh that I get from people when uh, when I tweet that Tom Arnold's on. For some reason, culturally, a lot of people have had enough of Tom Arnold. And uh, I sort of jumped at the opportunity to talk to Tom Arnold because he's a guy that's been through some shit, definitely through some up and downs, definitely persistent. He's definitely a survivor. He's definitely a guy that people judge almost immediately, that people put into some frame. That guy, he's one of those guys. He's one of those, that guy, that guy. Tom Arnold, uh, 
talked pretty candidly about a lot of things, and I, I know that's not necessarily unusual for Tom, but but uh, I, I found a new respect for him, and I told him right to his face. I said, look, you know, they, when I first heard of you, you were that comic guy, a quote-unquote comic who married Roseanne. You know, I, I judged him as a climber, as an opportunist, as a guy uh, who didn't have his own chops. But he's got something now, man. He's been through some shit. That's for sure. Uh, to check in, I bought a bike. As some of you know, I talked about it. I moved the bike over to my house. I had a fairly funny uh, situation happen with the bike. I took the front tire off the bike. What I did was I had an old bike that was rotting here that I just seemed to get tuned up every few years. And then I don't ride it. So I took that bike to the bike shop by Moon's house. And I got that bike tuned up. And I put that bike at Moon's house for when Moon wants to ride bikes. I have that bike over there, which is a good bike. It's a 21-speed bike. Seems like an irrational amount of speeds. And it's a little bit complicated. And I took my new 7-speed cruiser back to my house. I took the tire off. I put it in Moon's car, drove it over here, and then I put the pet tire back on and the brakes were rubbing. And I'm looking at the bike. It seems like a s- simple bit of machinery. And I can't figure out why the fuck the front brakes are rubbing on my brand new bike. So I assume, like, is there something wrong with the bike? Did I get a lemon? How could you get a lemon? It's just a fucking bike. What is the fucking problem? And I'm getting, now I got to take it down to the bike store by me because just transporting it seemed to cause some sort of problem with the brakes. Coincidentally, they did a shoot over here to promote my IFC show. And there was a bunch of crew guys around bearded men men who move lighting apple boxes apple crates the like things gaffers lighting people boom people the sound guy so i said does anyone know how to fix bikes because i don't know what that will happen here the brakes are rubbing i just took the tire off put it back on shouldn't be a big problem i don't know how to fix it several men gathered around my bike did not know what to do and then one of them says wait a minute the sound guy's italian He's got to know how to fix a bike. And the other guy goes, isn't that a little racist to assume that all Italians know how to fix bikes? And the other guy goes, I don't know. Not really. Maybe they do. So they called the Italian sound guy over, had that bike fixed in seconds. That that wheel wasn't rubbing nothing. Two seconds. He's like, oh, you just have to do the screw there uh, like that. I, I have no idea how to do an accent. But I was grateful. I was grateful for the, the history of, of understanding delicate machinery, Arts, crafts, woodworking, masonry, uh, stained glass work, uh, cathedral building, uh, painting, um, frescoing. Uh, I'm, I'm glad that, uh, yeah, and also winemaking and you know, shoes, they're shoemakers. And I, I'm just uh, happy that there's a legacy of that type of attention to uh, simple and practical mechanics of things that this Italian man was delivered to me by the universe as a sound guy and fixed the front brake pads on my bike. Thank you, Italy. Thank you, Michelangelo. Thank you, Leonardo da Vinci. And thank the, I'd like to thank the de' Medici family for, for being patrons to much of that. That's, that's where that comes from. All right. I'm going to go change my shirt, and then you're going to go listen to me talk to Tom Arnold. You don't have to go anywhere. Just stay here. Just stay here. I'm going to talk to Tom Arnold. All right? What were you gonna say though about shooting shit? Well, you you know, first of all, I didn't know if this would be your house or your house from the show. Yeah, which is very similar. And uh, and you know, and, and I also said that I really liked the show and I felt it improve. You know what? It's, it's like it was a new show starts. You know, th- there's a point pretty early on, and it yeah. happened with the Roseanne show. It happens with whatever where where you kind of 
decide, oh, this is working or this isn't working. And you don't, and because you don't air, I assume you shoot them before you start airing. Sure, of course. In the old days, we had, we aired, you know, the two weeks after, let's right. say. So we could really work on stuff that we, we got feedback pretty right. quick. Right. And so it's tough nowadays because you guys put it all in the can. It. Yeah. 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 And then you go, you know, what, you well, know, whatever happens is going to happen. Yeah. But there's a lot of cooks in the kitchen in some ways, which isn't necessarily bad. I mean, we I have the production company and the network and the studio, and they're all pretty diplomatic. So there's a lot of eyes on it, just not audience eyes. Well, you need one person, and I always said this on the Roseanne show. Uh, I I I don't know what I did. I mean, I feel I did something. I feel, but I could tell her no. Yeah. And you need one person that you respect because you know we're, you're you're the star of the show. You're all into it. You're yeah. a writer, and one right. person you respect is like, no, this isn't. You know, uh, don't wrestle Steven Seagal on a train. Uh, you know, don't win the lottery. <laughs> yeah. And so, you know, that's a, becomes an important person that you, uh, that you trust one person. Yeah, no, absolutely. I, I definitely had people I could trust, but also being part of the whole process, that you'll yeah. be part of the editing process and part of the writing process. Like, I'm there at all points. Right. So, and I'm also learning as I go along. Right. And I'm sort of the, you know, the last word and the de facto oh, head for sure. writer. For sure. But there were guys, I, they were definitely, I, I definitely had a good crew. Yeah. So, how are you doing? I'm man? doing well. I'm doing well. What'd you lose? A million pounds? I lost a hundred pounds in a year. Uh, I, I didn't even realize how fat I was, but I, uh, you know, had my first child uh, ten months ago. Congratulations! And thank you. And it was a long journey. It was a long journey. Uh, what do you mean? Well, I mean, I uh, started really trying in 1990 to have a kid. Yep. And uh, I have with a, this woman. Well, the, no, that was with Roseanne. It would have been funny with this woman because she'd be like 12. <laughs> but uh, no, that was my first wife. I've been married four times, and we, all, each of my wives have tried. Yeah. And we, because uh, of my low sperm count, we had to do the in vitro fertilization process. Yeah. Which they, is, you deliver them. Yeah, well, yeah, and you, the woman has all the bears the yeah. brunt of all the crap, and it right. was, even though it was my fault, so I just knew it wasn't going to happen. But Ashley, my my wonderful wife, said, "Let's please, please try one more time," and just a miracle happened. Yeah, yeah, and you got one. I got one, and you know what? The second I he was born, I realized, oh, this is when I was supposed to have a child, not. <laughs> When I was 18 and my girlfriend said she was pregnant, or the other times I tried with my other wives and, and tried to force it and, yeah. oh, this will make everything good. This will, you know, it's this relationship, it's this time in my life, I'm healthy. And so, anyway, I also realized that I, even though I'm sober with drugs and alcohol, I don't eat soberly. So I said, well, I'm going to, for my child there, because I'm 54, I've got to live as long as possible. Right. And I was getting close to 300 pounds again. And uh, I just started eating healthy. I'm not on a diet or anything, I just eat very healthy. You exercise? I exercise a lot. I do a lot of cardio. Yeah, a little bit that. That so it's interesting because I, you know, I, I have an addictive personality myself, and I'm yeah. sober as well. You seem pretty level. Yeah, I mean, you know, well, I, usually. I, well, I've seen you pretty uh, not oh, not yeah. on drugs, but yeah. but certainly jacked up. Well, people, it's funny because they say, "Oh, he's uh, he's on coke or he's on whatever." I haven't done cocaine or uh, anything like that since uh, December 10th, 1989. I haven't had a drink since then. In the mid uh, 2000s. Um, I was in a motorcycle wreck, and it's such an old story. And I've heard young people tell me this story, and I go, eh, you know, so I I would, should have been aware, yeah. And so I do remember the moment it worked, yeah, where I went, oh, there's yeah. something there. And so you know, I had an issue. I ended up in the hospital for uh, a couple of months and uh, coma, and uh, you know, I uh, so I'm I'm very capable of things. But it's funny because uh, you were people, in a coma. I was in a coma for three weeks. Wow. Yeah. Uh, did you feel rested afterwards? <laughs> it is so, you know, the experience, because as you're coming out of the coma, it takes a while, uh -huh. and you kind of, 
feel like you're somewhere and you can sort of hear people talking. You definitely can hear people talking. And you integrate them into what the reality is that you have. And the reality I had was that I was backstage at SNL. And <laughs> really? it was so 100%. And we were backstage and it was a different backstage in, in real life. And But we were backstage at, and every, so every nurse or whatever that came in and did whatever uh-huh. or talked just became part of that story yeah and, and were you so, waiting to go on were you hosting what I, I must have been hosting and just sitting back there you, did, you haven't hosted i have time. i hosted it three times really co-hosted once yeah one other with time roseanne? Yeah. yeah i did roseanne then i did without her after we yeah it's weird because i was trying to remember like i how do you think that people know you mostly as as That's roseanne's husband? yeah well, well that uh, there's young people that don't know that i'm always shocked because yeah. i do stand up so right. you meet all these well people. that's what that's what i remember i remember you first being on my radar and i've been doing stand-up a long time yes. probably as long as you maybe when did you 30 start? years 82 83 so i'm i'm 86 yeah but but like i didn't know you as a comic right but then when you married roseanne people were like yeah he's a comic i'm like he's a comic oh yeah 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 that's kind of because it was such a when you marry somebody that famous uh it becomes about that you know up to that point when I met her I met her when I was 23 and she was 30 and she was a comic from Denver she wasn't famous yet and she came to Minneapolis where I lived for five years where I really honed my craft or yeah. whatever and uh, we we bonded I opened up for her and we bonded immediately you were featuring for her? yeah and she, she wasn't this is before she even went to the store. Oh right, before she was on Carson, before right. any of that stuff, and so. But she was. Yeah, I also knew this is a freaking talented woman. Oh yeah, yeah. powerful, right? And she liked that I was. You know, I was crazy, crazy. Yeah, yeah. And she liked that that I didn't wasn't afraid of the club owner who the club owner at the time, very nice guy named Scott Hanson. He weighed about seven hundred pounds, and he would say he still does. And although we had it, I don't. He says because people have death pools about me all the time, but we had a death pool, and I had August eighty six. Uh, for Scott he's still alive he's still doing well but uh, so he, he would be very he'd say Tom please my family is here don't say any fat jokes yeah. but you know and then you know I did all the old standard grab the curtain and say Scott you forgot your pants yeah, and, yeah. and just uh, just the fact that he said to not do it and I did it which is really stupid Yeah, she liked that Sure, sure. It's like that guy's got spunk. Yeah, he's got in fact, he's a, a, an alcoholic and he he's crazy. Yeah, he doesn't give a fuck. That he doesn't guy. give a fuck. He obviously doesn't. Well, I mean, so Minneapolis, that's where you ended up, but you didn't grow up in Minnesota. I grew up in Otomo, Iowa. Where is that? Southeast Southeast Iowa. It's a farming community uh, 20 miles north of Missouri. Do you come from farmers? Yeah, well, farmers farm. Everything in our town is uh, farm related. My dad uh, ran a plant that makes industrial knives, so, you know, into uh, corn shucker combines and stuff like that. So, so everything. Blades? Yeah. Uh, Diamond Blades. Huh. Yeah. And he owns the company? No, he was. Uh, he ran it. He was uh, an industrial engineer. Yeah. So he did time study and things like that, and which is uh, telling a person, if you work this fast, this is how much you'll make, if you can make this many pieces. So he uh, uh, he raised this by himself, too, until I was 10, I have to say. But he, he knew how many uh, how long a roll of toilet paper Where was your mom? Last. She was an alcoholic, shockingly. She was in our town. Uh, when I was four, they officially broke up. She uh, was married seven times. Uh, she Seven. died of the disease. Uh-huh. Yeah, uh-huh. Uh, you know. Now being a father, I sure appreciate what he was doing. How many he, siblings were there? Yeah, th- there were three of us. It was, I was four. My sister was three. And my brother was one. Huh. And uh, he, th- what happened is they they were going to court. Yeah. And my mom was so crazy and whatever. Yeah. But they were going to put me on the stand, and then Dad said, "Well, that's it." And the very next day, she came out to his plant, and it said, "Here's the keys to the house. The kids are with the babysitter. They're all yours." After this long sort of fight, but she that, just gave up. They, yeah, she, she was just she mad. Knew 
knew. But I think she knew, like, that's the biggest blessing I have from her, that she went, oh, I'm an alcoholic, I'm a little crazy. The, these kids would be better off with their dad. Uh. And so that, I, I'm grateful to her for that. Uh-huh. And when did you start to, to realize that uh, you had the bug? For alcoholism? Yeah, for alcohol, oh, for my food. God. Very year. early. For food, uh, my mom would come and visit once in a while. Uh-huh. And uh, when she came, she gave me a dollar. Yeah. And you could go to Kent's Grocery and buy 10 giant candy bars for a dollar. Yeah. Like the big, the old days, the big ones. And she would come, and sometimes she wouldn't show up or whatever, but I wanted that dollar. Yeah. Because that was my candy bars, it was yeah. my sugar. Sure. And uh, so I would put uh, put up with that. Whatever, yeah. I want to see her. I wanted that dollar. I'd go right to the store. I'd line them up on my bed. I'd say, I'm not going to eat them all. Yeah. I'm going to hide them from my brother, sister, whatever. But yeah. I ended up eating them all in that sugar high, yeah, you know, yeah. that out of it. And then my grandmothers were wonderful, and they would feed me and watch me eat. And I became that guy in the family that people like to watch eat because I ate so much. Yeah. And you feel so loved. Yeah. And that's absolutely my, the, my first addiction. Uh, food. It, yeah, food, absolutely. Yeah, I have some food issues myself. Yeah. I'm, I'm a little, uh, my mother had an I've heard, disorder. I know you're, I, 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 I bond <laughs> yeah. with you there. I I'm get on Weight that. Watchers right now and I'm not, right. I, I just, because I, I need the control element. And you're skinny. Well, I just wanted to, I want to get down to the weight I'm comfortable at. And people don't understand, you have to kind of eat. You cannot you do, if you don't want to do heroin anymore, that's pretty easy. That's can, right. Yeah, it's, one of the, it's one of those things, not like yeah. alcohol where it's like, I don't put that in my body. You have to eat. Food issues are tricky. Right. They are very tricky. God damn. And so you got to- You've gone up and down a lot. I have gone up and down a lot. I went in 1988, Oprah lost a lot of weight. I don't know if you remember, but she came out on stage and she fit in her skinny jeans and she had all that uh, fat. Yeah. Anyway, I did that, OptiFast, which is fasting for 65 days. I did not eat food. I just drank the shakes. I was also doing a lot of cocaine, which (laughs) Oprah was on. And I remember losing 85 pounds. Oprah was on cocaine? She was not at the time. She's done it, but she was not- Did you suggest that part of the diet I've told her that i've said that on the show but i you know it's i that was the time i lost a lot of weight then uh you know i had this movie called happy endings that i loved and felt honored to be in yeah. and and there was the it was premiering at the sundance it was the first movie and i said yeah. i'm gonna get down so i could wear this suit and i lost a ton of weight and the moment that i got to 199 and three quarters i went straight to mcdonald's and had two double quarter pounders with cheese because it was over. I I'd reached my goal weight. I think that like I'd heard. I don't remember who told me or whether or not it's even public information or or where the hell I heard it. But I'd heard that that you know you were trying to help Chris Farley. Yes, we were very we were buddies and uh, Chris. I met uh, after he did an impression of me yeah. on Saturday Night Live with right. uh, with what's her name as Roseanne, and, and I said, "Oh, that guy's funny." And I had him come out, and we, you know, uh, Lauren really set that relationship up. I'd been sober two years, right? And uh, it was pretty common knowledge, and Lauren really set that up, and that's why I will always love Lauren because I saw a side of him that a lot of people don't see, which is. You know, on I believe it was my fifth sober birthday, which would have been Chris's third. Um, I, I was waiting for him to call me. We were going to talk. We we're going to say, "Hey," and Lauren called and said, uh, "Yeah, he's in his room, crying so loud that everybody could hear him, like making sure everybody heard him." Yeah, he's relapsed. Yeah, he's relapsed. And you know, this is after we talked about him because he had Lauren had such a bad experience with John Belushi, yeah. obviously. Uh, even though it didn't happen on the show, right. people blame Lauren gets when things go sideways, they blame him a lot. Yeah. And uh, you know, he does give off this air of whatever the, the, the arrogance. Yeah, 
And but the truth is that Lord said to me, I'm so pissed because he, you and I, Tom, we grew up in a harder life, you know, working class. His his family was rich, which is true. He's got every fucking opportunity in the world. Everybody wants to help him, and it's so frustrating. I'm I'm suspended him for the show. I might even fire him. I don't care. I, and this is you know that's hard to do when somebody's on a roll. Yeah, sure. You know because I've yeah. uh, you know I've had many calls for people about Charlie. I called Charlie Sheen's uh, uh, agent one day because I knew him, and I I said I'm going to do a, an intervention on him. Yeah. He goes, no, 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 it's too much money. I'm not going to get involved. But he does those score, and I whatever he wants to do, he should be able to do. Yeah, it's um, his his uh, his physical integrity is amazing. He must be made of some solid shit, man. Right. Well, we know alcoholics like that that, that go about and they 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 usually don't smoke crack, but they but they're at the bar and you've seen them year after year after year, and they're old become old. And yeah. It, once in a while, it works that way. It usually goes the other way. Yeah, yeah. They usually you end know, up uh, buckling, like uh, Phil, the Phil Phil Hoffman. You yeah, know, that's yeah. a more oh, standard. Horrendous. You know. So all right, so you're in Iowa. Yeah, you're a kid. Yeah, and you and you're what? What are you doing? Well, when I was a kid, uh, you, you know, when you don't have a mom and you're in a small town, and yeah. your mom's a crazy, yeah, drunk lady, and everyone knows your mom's Everybody, a crazy. Yes, drunk? yes. Is she out in the streets? Yeah. Or? Well, she she worked at a bar, and she was like all the young people called her mom, which yeah. I always resented because yeah. you know, and and people know your story, so you get a lot of fights. I mean, you're picked, you know, over your mom. Yeah. Yeah, your mom's a whore. You know, yeah. you hear that a lot. And so, and they're so mean. Kids are so mean. So, the first time I could make kids laugh in grade school that hated me. Yeah, I did something inappropriate. That was that's why I'm sitting here because yeah. I was like, oh shit, I get those guys because I really wanted those guys to like me. The bullies, yeah, sure, of course. Yeah, I mean, I sucked up to them or whatever. And in fact, there was one bully named Ammo. Chris Abenhauser, and man, he picked on me. He picked on everybody. And the day I graduated from high school. This, you know, my whole childhood, this guy's picked on me. He started a fight with me at graduation party, and man, I finally had it, and just, just, would he go nuts? It just broke his nose, just whatever, whatever. I forgot that I'd gotten big. Yeah. These guys always seem big. When yeah. I was eight and nine and ten, they were right. bigger then, but all of a sudden things changed, and, and that was a big moment for me, and I said, you know what, from now on, that that's how I'm going to handle things. Yeah. And and that's the way it went. That's the way it went. That in in comedy. Yeah, that in comedy. Being funny, but you so, know, but trying to because my thing was, and I honestly thought this: if I could be on TV once, yeah, the people in Tumble Iowa would like me, <laughs> which is not true. But uh, <laughs> you know, but that's what I was thinking. And also, my dad, I mean, whatever respite he got was freaking Bob Hope special. Man, he would work so hard, and I'd be upstairs, and Bob Hope special would be on, and I could hear him just guffawing, and I was like, oh my god, that's what I gotta, you know. So so when I first moved out here, I did a Bob Hope special like right away, and that's how old was so Bob? big. He was so old; he didn't know who Roseanne was. He goes, "Who's the broad?" <laughs> Who's the broad? And you know, his cue cards. But it was Bob Hope, and I yeah. got to go down to his house, and I got to know his family, and you know. Uh, but it also taught me, oh shit, I'm gonna have to work forever. This is how they do it. This guy is so rich, so successful, and he's reading off these cue cards, doing this absurd special that yeah. he did not rehearse. He has no idea what's going on. He just has to show up and be Bob Hope. He has to show up, and then I hear this story towards the end of his life where they're wheeling him down to the Palm Springs airport so he could greet people coming off the plane, and that's a fact. So he would, they would wheel him He just him down liked there. to do it. He just liked to do it. And it just kept him yeah. uh, engaged. And, yeah. yeah, and I see that a lot. Because he lived to like 100, didn't he? I yeah, mean, he I think he was 100 old. even. And I, I, But I see that a lot. A comedian's either die at 33 or they live to 100 usually <laughs> is that but, true but uh, it's, 
seems like it. But uh, uh, but I uh, not sure you that, know that's a that's a that's a law. But yeah, that's a law. But, but <laughs> yeah. it's uh, you know I also know a lot of really funny old men that are comedians and women. Yeah. that are the funniest people in our business, and they're comedians. So there's something to that. Yeah, and you just you think that you're you're like your manic disposition and your 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 sort of uh, need to be liked by everybody was just uh, genetic or it just you know, Prob- I mean, 50-50. Yeah, you know. Uh, um, yeah, fifty-fifty. I mean, my my you know hyperactivity was, uh, I'm sure, genetic. But nobody like your dad wasn't an abusive guy or anything. You no, 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 yeah, not yeah. at all, not at all. And my when I was ten, he married the next door neighbor, and she had a couple kids, and that was terrible. Um, it was terrible because she'd come from a very corporal punishment background uh-huh. and i was the oldest and she was going to tame me yeah and it and it made my life it was it was a not not a pleasant uh, experience i get along with her now of course um i i know it was hard for her because i was like oh my god you're taking my dad but he yeah. did he did ask me if he could marry her and, yeah and i remember saying well yeah because of course but she know. beat everybody up yeah yeah i mean she had a, a chart on the fridge and check marks during the day for when my dad got home, and this is how many whips he'd get. And uh-huh. and, and the saddest thing, and I just thought this recently because my son's born, was the times I was in bed, man, I was loaded up with the un- extra underwear, the padding, because I knew it was coming because there had been a lot of check marks next to my name. And uh, he would say, oh, come on, Ruth, I don't want to. She goes, God damn it, it's him or me. you know. And so you're oh 10, God. and you're hearing that. And you're like, oh my god, I don't want my dad to get divorced. So didn't you? So you march you on take, down there and say, the let's do it. Yeah, I want my dad to be yeah, happy. Yeah, I'll take the hit. Yeah, yeah. And fun. I have to say too, it was the day uh, when I was in rehab the first time. They flew out, and I confronted him. I was like, I was ready to not have a family. I said, this is the abuse that happened to me. And you know, I talked about the, the um, a neighbor that my mom had hired to babysit had had raped me when I was a kid. It was a kind of an ongoing. And then it turns out a lot of other kids in the neighborhood, I eventually confronted him. But I, to confront them, I said, this abuse of this treatment was unacceptable. And I, I just was prepared for them to say it didn't happen or whatever. But they both said it, it happened and we're sorry. We didn't know better. Uh, and to me, that was everything. Yeah, because that that sort of thing that that you know fills you with shame and confusion. Yeah, you, you know you carry that forever. It, it dictates who you are. Yes, and and if you can't get closure on that or grieve it, you're fucked. Well, and and also this intimate moment with my I'm not as close as people are with their families. Yeah, but this intimate moment with my father and and my stepmother, it was like so emotional that they copped and said we we screwed up whatever i mean and then roseanne bursted the door she'd been outside and said we're late for this whatever and it was so weird i felt so emasculated and so fucking vulnerable and shitty and then afterwards she said i need to make amends to you i'm so sorry i did that i was just jealous because i want to do that with my family and i was like oh okay i get it she did it on purpose yeah she was she knew what was going on in there she uh couldn't take it and wow. uh, and but yet I understood completely where she was coming from. What year was this? Anytime that was in 1990, early now, 1990. Did you just say that you, you were sexually abused and you yes. confronted that guy as well? Yes, yes. Um, when you when I got sober, I started really going over. You know, how did I get here? How did I get all fucked up? And, and had that been a memory you suppressed? It's a bit of memory. It was there, but it wasn't. Uh, 
you know, and I never talked about it. It wasn't detail. It's like uh, if you look at the sky and you see random clouds, and then one day you actually see, oh my God, it's fucking Mount Rushmore. I see exactly who these people are. That's really what had happened. Because I was all fucked up all the time. Well, how old were you? Uh, it started when I was uh, three until I was seven. Really? Yeah. And uh, the my mom, he lived right across the street, and uh, my mom would drink during the day, and she set me, you know, set me over there, and uh, you know, so my first thing was detailing what happened. First of all, the day I didn't know how to what, about sex, and I remember saying to my stepmother, "I don't know about sex." And she gave me a book, read this book, and, yeah. and I started going through this book, and I went, "Oh my god, I've already done that." <laughs> You know, with yeah. this dude, how, how this fucking hairy dude. Uh, when I didn't know about sex, I was like 12. So I was and, very and, immature. And, and then you're like, oh. They- oh, my God, I've done all these. Because I thought, oh, maybe sex is something where you go buy something at Target yeah, yeah. and then you do a, you add something onto your body. Or I, yeah. mean, I was very naive, very... You oh, know, that's that's horrendous. And yeah. you're like, oh, I've done all this oh stuff. Oh, my God, like, I've done this. Yeah, oh, it's just fucking... Horrible. But I, I wasn't going to tell my dad, because I didn't want him to be upset. After it happened, I mean, when it was happening, I was like, first of all, I was scared of the fucking dude. I mean, Wait, he did clear. he threaten you? Oh, yeah, yeah. That's how it was. He did. He did. The worst thing he did was um, his house sat up a little bit from ours, directly across the street, Center Avenue at Tomo, Iowa. He said, and they're all big gun people, I just yeah. have to say... He had his rifle and he said, I could shoot your dad right between the eyes from here. You know, and that was it. He was just, you know, if there's one thing I wasn't going to lose, it was my dad. That was the threat. Yeah, because honestly, my dad would have went nuts. My dad was very low key, whatever, but I I just know, you know. You're a kid, you don't know he's bluffing necessarily. Right. And I also didn't know what, I knew it was weird and wrong and and painful, but I didn't know it was sad. I didn't know what. Well, it wasn't. It was rape. Right. It? It, that's what it was. But the great thing is, so I start putting this all together. Then I fly back to my hometown, start walking the streets, you know, putting it back together. This is back in 80... 80... Back in 1990. When you first got soaked. Yeah. The first time. Yeah. Yeah. And I, so I started knocking on the doors to see if the other kids lived there. And, uh, and some of them did. Yeah. And uh, I said, listen, I just got to ask you about, you know, Terry. And they're like, oh, yeah, yeah. And then I had these very, you know, they were very upset. They're like, oh, yeah. And he'd and, done it to them too? Yeah. And I was, my sister had just been arrested for being a, a big time meth dealer. Like a big, like there's a book called Methland that references her bringing the methamphetamine business to the Midwest. It's a big, big deal. She, so I, I was, uh, she was on trial. So you're I, all kind of famous. Yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> so I didn't know about confronting the guy. I just needed to put it back together. Right. He obviously didn't live there then. Um, I hadn't seen him, but in the back of my mind, I thought, boy, if I'm at Target back home and I see that dude, first of all, I don't want him saying to whoever he's with, you see that guy, that famous guy yeah. there? You know, I fucked him. I, you know, so, <laughs> that, was, so, that was your concern. That was my big concern, honest to God. <laughs> so my sister's on trial. I go to support her in Des Moines. Yeah. Sitting next to somebody, and I had talked about being sexually abused on Oprah. Sitting next to a woman, she says, oh, by the way, I saw you on Oprah. And I said, oh, thank you. And she goes, yeah, it. Uh, I'm married to so-and-so's brother, and he did it to him, too. So he, he did it to his own brother. Yeah, his own little brother. Yeah. So then I'm like, oh, I got to do that. Like, this is, there's so many people. So I make the plan. I get a private eye, find out where he works. He, this guy is a big church leader in Des Moines now. Get out of here. Big church leader, runs a company, big company. Still. Still. So this is all private. Yeah. Yeah. 
So I go, I plan this out, I practice with my therapist because I didn't. Well, first of all, I didn't want to freaking kill him. I didn't want to. I didn't want to get arrested. For, Hard to know what you you're going to do with the feelings behind that. Well, I didn't know for sure, but I practiced, uh-huh. you know, and I tried to get him arrested first. I went yeah. to the authorities and they go, boy, we feel terrible to have the statute of limitations, whatever. So I knew I was going to do it. I knew where he worked. I had a. So you had no legal recourse. No. Right. Zero. Um, I go to where he works. I, I, and I was, my heart was pounding. And Roseanne was back here, but she was on a phone call away. And She'd been supportive. through a similar thing, right? Yes. Yes. So uh, the receptionist sees me. She's like, Oh my God, Tom Arnold. I go, I'm here to see Terry. I'm an old friend. She goes, I'm going to call him. I go, no, no, don't call him. Where's his office? So I start walking down the hall. He comes out of his office, sees me. I haven't seen him in years and years and years. He knew exactly why I was there. I knew. And, 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 and so I start my speech. I'm here to give you back the shame and pain you caused me as a child. And if you did that to me again, I'd break your fucking neck and whatever. Uh, as I got closer to him, he, he seemed to get bigger, mm-hmm. and I seemed to get smaller. Oh, boy. And I went right up to him, and he stuck his uh, big, meaty fucking figure in my chest this time uh, and said, your memories are wrong, which told me he's probably been confronted before, and it scared me. I was like, uh, I felt four or five, like, and I could smell the fucking room in the, his house. There was a secret room there that he used to take me into. I could smell it, and I felt like a kid for a second, and then I snapped out of it, and it helps because the therapist yeah. said, this might happen. Yeah. And I grabbed his hand, I bent it back, and said, I will break your fucking neck. Now, by now, people who know Tom Arnold is there, yeah. they've come out to see me see his, their boss, because I'm going to say hi to him. I was loud. It People heard it. Everybody knew. Uh, he knew. We had the moment, and he knew, and then I left. I get outside, I call Rosanna, I'm like, oh my God, I fucking did it, man, I fucking did it. And then I said, you know what? And I, I said, I'm going to make one more stop. I ran over to the state capitol, Iowa. Terry Branstad, who's the governor now, yeah. he was the governor then. Yeah. I, I just walk into his office, I go, buddy, I need a favor. This motherfucker is raping kids, and I'm telling you what, he's doing it now, and he's in Des Moines. We got to fucking do something about it. Because, oh, he was about to adopt another boy. He only adopted boys, by the way. He was adoption. He was going to adopt another boy. And so, uh, I'm getting upset talking about it. But, but uh, so, I said, you got to stop this adoption. And, and, and Terry Brand said, the governor's like, holy, you shit. Well, you can't even be having this conversation with me. You need to get on your plane and go home. And this didn't happen. I go, you got to do something, man. We got to fucking figure this out. He's like, Tom, the adoption fell through. I didn't talk to the governor again, but it fell through. I got home and I said, have I done everything? And I said, what about the kids in his neighborhood now? So I had my farm hands in the middle of the night, six blocks around his house. You got a farm house. up there? Had a farm in a tumble, yeah. outside of a tumble in Wapo County. Six blocks outside uh, from his house, outward, put up signs with his name, his crimes, his address, just to warn every kid. Put him up kid high uh, everywhere. Now, I uh, people are like, is he going to sue you? And I said, I hope he sues me. <laughs> That's my <laughs> only... So, Everybody knew, and man, you know, it's it's uh, Iowa's very small town, so everybody knew, and uh, you know, I haven't seen him since, but you know, I did, I did what I could do. You don't know if he came clean ever or anything else. I assume he didn't. Yeah, but he couldn't deny. I mean, it. You know, um, when you put the signs up, did you get any feedback as to none, the reaction? No. And this was in 1990. Yeah. Wow. 19, maybe 91, because uh-huh. it took me a little bit of time to get it to get over there so, 90 or 91. so for most of your life yeah you were carrying this shit yeah 
And and the repercussions of that might have had something to do with your eating disorder. Right. It might have had something to do with your your emotional instability. Oh, right. And then you cover it up with alcohol. Alcohol is great for covering drugs. Sure. And, you know, I didn't even smoke pot until I got out of high school because in Iowa, you know, tell me, you were the stoners or you were the the partiers. Right. I mean, there was no, you didn't mix. Right. It was drugs were bad, alcohol, tons of alcohol is good. Right. And, you know, I smoked pot a little bit after high school. I didn't like it. And then when I moved to Minneapolis one night, it was the First Avenue, is a big club there where I worked and whatever. And, and uh, an old friend who also took me to my first AA meeting, uh, not that I, I'm saying AA public. I'm sure, not saying 12 step meeting. I talk about it. 12 step meeting. Oh, good. Uh, she said, Here, you want to do a hit of Coke? And, yeah. I, and I was like, sure. So I went to the bathroom and, did it and loved it and did and I came back. She goes, "Where's the?" I go, "I did it all." She goes, "Oh my god!" I go, "Don't worry, I got my girlfriend's credit card. Let's go get some more." Yeah. And so for five years, from eighty four to eighty nine, or four or five years, it was on. Yeah. And escalated, escalated, escalated. So while you were in Minnesota, yes, and I brought it with me to Los Angeles in nineteen eighty eight. So okay, so let's go through the timeline. So you started doing comedy in Iowa, or you you didn't start first till... time was at the University of Iowa. I got a stage at Student Union. Is that where you went to school? Yeah. What did you finish over there? No, okay. I mean I went for I graduated from community college in Indian Hills, which is in Ottumwa, and then went to the University of Iowa. Went for two more years, not even close to graduating. Uh, what happened was they had uh, shows at the at the Student Union. You what get, were you studying? Business administration. Uh huh. I was going to work for my uncle. He runs a big brokerage firm there. Yeah. Um, but they'd have show you. They had open mic night first, which I got up and told old jokes. I'd stolen. I didn't know you you couldn't do other people's jokes. I mean, right, sure. I didn't. And then these comedians from Minneapolis, real comedians, would come, and I would have all of my friends come, and we would drink Everclear Punch, which is Everclear straight with powdered Gatorade. No, you know, it's oh, like really? no, no, it's li- just, no, no water. No. <laughs> so he's so drunk, and then my fifty guys. As soon as I did my stupid set. Would all get up and leave. There uh-huh. would be anybody there, and so the guy that this guy named Scott Novotny that owned the Comedy Cabaret uh, in in Minneapolis said, "Hey, if you get your friends to stay next time, we'll give you a job in Minneapolis." Do you remember the comics that came through? Yeah, Joel Madison was one uh, who I'm still friends with, still work with. I brought him out to a lot of them. I brought out to write on Roseanne, and then we. Um, the best was Joel Hodgson. Yeah, Joel, yeah, yeah. Joel Hodgson came, and he ended up staying at my house in Iowa City that night. And I was so amazed by him. He was so different, and his cadence and his props, and he was so funny and so unusual. And I, I loved the guy, and he kept saying, you need to have something original. And and he said that when he was in my bedroom, and there was a fish tank there. And I go, that's it. I'll become the fish. The I'll, I'll do train goldfish. That'll be my thing. And that's what I became... No, no, Tom Arnold of the Fabulous Goldfish Review. I had these goldfish that went around, and basically they died, but I d- did impressions with them. One was a sword swallower, one did an impression of the Pope, had a ring of fire, one got on a motorcycle, went through a ring of fire that a audience member. <laughs> so a, you, you killed around. goldfish every night. I did. <laughs> I did. But uh, when I moved to Minneapolis, uh, <laughs> they said, first of all, I go, as soon as I find out I have a job you in were comedy. You goldfish guy. I was a goldfish guy. People that, <laughs> as soon as I had a job in comedy, yeah. Uh, I got a trash bag with my clothes, got yeah. on a bus, went there, 100 bucks to my name. I go to the comedy club. I go, I'm here. I don't have a driver's license or a car, so I need to live close by. What were you, 19? I was 22. Uh-huh. I need to live close by. What's uh, He goes, no, you don't really need to live close by because it's one weekend. that we. Uh, I thought I had a full-time job right. up there for like $17. I was like, holy shit. So I went to Williams Pub, which is the closest bar, yeah. and said, do you need any bouncers or bar backs or whatever? And I 
work there and, and one of the waitresses needed a roommate and things just you know ha- but if I had known there wasn't a real job there I would have stayed at school because sure. I was crazy but not that crazy right. but now you're stuck in Minneapolis yeah. and you got a job at a bar yeah. and you're working weekends at a comedy club selling time life books yeah and who were the guys like you know before you d- you got the goldfish thing or were you already doing that right away I was doing that by the time I got up there I was almost on Letterman like way early because of the goldfish thing. Robert yeah. Morton, they had me fly out to Caroline's. Yeah. I was terrible, but I was the goldfish guy that did these. And so it was more of a stupid human trick. But I don't know if I was almost on there, but they wanted to see me. So I yeah. went out there and, and uh, you know, and of course I tell everybody I'll be on Letterman in six weeks. And of course it takes 10 years or yeah. whatever it takes. But, uh, you know, I thought, well, this is this is great. This is my thing. So how, how long before, like, so you, how long did you do the goldfish thing? I did them for the first year, uh, two years uh, in Minneapolis. So you had a guy at the pet store who knew you yeah. were coming? Oh, yeah, yeah. And I had uh, pet stores everywhere because what happened is after the show, I'd go out and get fucked up and I'd leave them in my trunk. And even though I had them in a cooler, a lot of times they'd freeze to death. And so I, it was always, and sometimes I had to do a show with them dead and just keep swirling the bowl because I couldn't <laughs> find a pet store. But the worst part was, Joel Hodgson came to see me after I moved to Minneapolis. Yeah. Because he was, I said, do you my inspiration? This is before Mystery Science Theater. Yes. Yeah. And uh, he said to our, our mutual friend, yeah. uh, he said, what do you think of, of Tom? And he goes, I feel like I'm watching myself. I picked up everything about him, like his cadence. I talk like this, and I did. So you absorbed him. I absorbed, like well, intentionally. Yeah. I thought it was okay. But, but I also think that's by virtue, and this is just something that I noticed, I think then when, that when when people are sexually abused, certainly right. the dudes that, that I've met who, who have had it in their past, they, they, their soul has been raped. Oh, so yeah, So they yeah, think yeah. their sense of self is incredibly fragile. Right. So they almost absorb, you know, people's confidence. Right. They absorb oh, yeah, their, really their, cool. their disposition, yeah. right? Yeah. I think another thing about that, the moment my son was born, I mean, I've been having these flashbacks of these wonderful things that happened to me as a child. Right. But you also remember yeah. the crappy ones. And- up till that point that he was born, there was a voice in my head that said, you were a bad kid. You deserve that. You deserve the other stuff. You know, that's that's why. You were bad. You were something wrong with you. And the moment I saw him, I realized, oh, my God, I was him. How could these people have done yeah. this to me? Oh, my right, God, I right. was him. Isn't that weird that, that somehow or another, it's interesting that you thought that it was... You know, it was your fault. Right. If I could make anything my fault, yeah. for real, it seems a little bit less, whether it's a relationship or whatever, it, it seems to take a little bit of the sting out of it. Right. And also, it sort of, a, it, it, it kind of, it means that your empathy ability is a little disabled because, right. you know, you know what right. I mean? It's like, right. because it's broken. Right. Wow. So when you had your kid, you're like, it was a revelation. Yeah. That there's no way this is beautiful right, innocence. Right, right. Yeah, I didn't That's deserve that. What was I, you know? All right, so so you're doing the goldfish thing. Yeah, and uh, no remorse for the fish. Well, I worked at a meatpacking plant for three years so out, out of high school. No, so goldfish are not high on the list. <laughs> but there would be towards the end of it because it's Minneapolis is so liberal. Yeah, people would start protesting and really? stuff. Oh yeah, it'd be yelling and. What'd you do at a meatpacking plant? Well. I loved it. It was. I mean, I loved it because it was the best job in Ottumwa, Iowa, and yeah. I, it's what I did after high school to save money for college. I um, well, I started on the kill floor. You um, did. Uh, yep. I worked on the kill floor. My grandpa had worked there fifty years. My dad had worked there a little bit. It was the big job in town. Um, in fact, my dad, I said, would you hire me to work at at uh, Lunds or whatever his place was? He goes, no, because I'd have to fire you. But if Louis Dudica 
we'll hire you dad of Hormel. I'll hire his kid to work for me. And that's really what happened. And so- It's a trade-off? It was a trade-off. He liked his kid better? Yeah, yeah. He, well, he knew he wouldn't have to, his kid wasn't a fuck up. So it was very honest. And, but I'll tell you, I, I love it, you know, because you go and, you know, then you're suddenly a part of something. And I hear people talking about NFL locker rooms. Yeah. And we have a locker room too. There. Yeah. Which is even more disgusting, as sure. you can imagine. But there was a sense you're covered of in law. blood. Yeah, you're covered in blood. You have knives. There's, you're working with some of the most disgusting people and human beings <laughs> on the planet. They happen to be really good at this thing. And uh, but you know, there was a sense of, of justice. We, if we had a f- problem in the plant, and there was a lot of problems, you didn't fight there. Because again, people have knives and guns. Yeah, yeah. You fought behind the union hall. It was very organized. And the old guys would get idiots like me. Her mouthy, they'd say, uh, and it was always this. Yeah. You know, Cubbage over there in uh, Hambone says you're a fag. Yeah. I go, what? <laughs> he said, what? He goes, yeah. Then they go to Cubbage, uh, yeah. Arnold said, whatever. And then we'd meet behind the Union Hall for their enjoyment and fight. And then everybody would go get drunk. So they'd together. set up fights. They'd set up fights. <laughs> and if you're stupid, you'd, you'd fall for it every time. Now, what, what, what happens on the killing floor? They, 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 you hit the, the cow gets killed, and then what do you guys the, dismember it? Was it was pork. It was pork. Oh. Okay. I worked at livestock, too. I'll tell you, basically what happens is the semi comes, and uh, and they drop off the, the hogs, and, and we weigh them. And if you work at livestock, you're, you kind of organize them, and then you drive them up the chute. You, and people always say how smart pigs are, but they, they aren't that smart because their buddies are going up this fucking chute, and then they're... They get, they don't come back for yeah. number one. They they go up the chute. A thing comes down because we kill them in a humane way, shocks them. Yeah. They drop down. You, I throw a thing around their back hoof, get them up in the air like a chain, and then the guy who has the best job, the highest paid job in the plant, is called a sticker. Yeah. He sticks them in the throat exactly at the right spot because yeah. if the blood doesn't drain out immediately, it's it's gamey and you're fucked. Yeah. One of the things about being in livestock is if somebody has a broken leg, one of yeah. those guys, yeah, you got to put them out of their misery. And you're supposed to one at a time shoot. You take a, a bolt gun, yeah. which is 22 shell, and a thing. Shoot him behind the ear, kill him, hang him up with the chain, take get him up in the air, and whatever. And uh, I I got the nickname Gunner because one day there were six of them, and it was almost lunchtime, so I shot them all. And then I went to lunch, so I thought, well, I'll hang them up when I get back. And the government condemned them. Yeah. So they had to throw the meat away. Right. And that's how everybody started calling me Gunner, which I I had this perverse the FDA, pride. The FDA guy on site. Yeah. Uh-huh. Yeah. Wow. And, and, and thank God for them. I'm going to tell you, if you know, I know a lot about food processing yeah. in general. Yeah. Thank God for those guys. And they're always there. They are there. And it's, they're a little, you, you could, things could slide a little bit. Yeah. But if they want to be dicks, they could be big dicks. But they, even at their worst, they're doing, a yeah, service. they are. Absolutely. Because <laughs> there's <laughs> a lot horrible. of horrible, horrible, horrible things. Yeah. And then, uh, so I moved in, I moved up, and then I got to come inside. I worked on a kill floor. I chiseled heads for a while, which is, was a great job. It's the heads are on a stake, a metal stake coming in front of you. Yeah, and you take a uh, this long knife and you ch- take out the the meat that's in the temple, which yeah. is really good meat. And then so literally heads are staring at you one after another after another. You you take it out and uh, I remember down there I took a I cut the whole scalp of a hog off with its giant ears. And these are all two hundred fifty pound hogs. And I put it on my helmet as I was working. Yeah, you know to pretend I was one of the whatever. Yeah. and the whole kill floor stopped. And they were plotting, and when it, when that stops, it's a problem for yeah. Hormel, and that's how I got my first uh, strike. Yeah, which I eventually by got wear, fired by wearing a pigskin yeah. hat. Yeah, but it, was there any sense of uh, moral conflict? About? There wasn't at the time. Uh, now I see it as just a hand.
heinous death. You know, there's yeah. no windows. Uh, you know, but I also feel like people, for the most part, farmers, real farmers, not factory farmers, yeah. family farmers, they have a respect for animals, even though they do slaughter them yeah. at a certain point. The way they're treated and the way of uh, decent people work is is more respectful than your average Joe, I mean, I can see where vegetarians uh, are like, oh, you shouldn't kill them, whatever. Right. I don't feel that way. I, I mean, I don't think you should kill them, but and it's not something I want to get into again. I don't I don't hunt. I don't. Uh, but uh, but I, I get it. I know how farmers treat their land and the animals and they're part of their thing. And when they're three years old, then they slaughter them. So, OK, so then once you OK, so you're you're in Minneapolis, you, you've done a year or so with the goldfish. Yeah. And now you're starting to do your own act. Yeah, people are like, you got to have your own voice. Right. You know, and that's uh, and that's where you got the, the sort of sweaty, manic. Yeah, thing going. yeah, exactly. So that was the easiest <laughs> thing to go to. And also I started writing. Yeah. And I started writing for Roseanne. Yeah. Which uh, After you met people. her. Yeah. And we uh, because I, I didn't know who she was. So I and met, you met her in 1887, 80, Oh, really? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And you just started sending her jokes. Well, no, she said, "Would you write me some jokes? I want to write me." So After I you said, first okay. met her, yeah. And so I wrote her jokes, and you know, when when one of her jokes would be on Johnny Carson, I'd be yeah. like, "Holy shit, everybody, look at that!" And but I knew her voice so well, but more than my own. Yeah. And it was this awesome thing. She was so freaking talented. Obviously, so you were writing for her when she broke. Yeah. Uh huh. Mm-hmm. And then how long before you you guys got involved romantically? We got involved romantically in 1989. I moved out here when Roseanne, as Roseanne show was ready to start. In 87, I did her, I played her husband, ironically, one of her husbands, on her HBO special. Uh-huh. Uh, you know, and uh, and then in 88, she says, I got the show coming. And you were headlining or featuring? I was, well, I headlining in the Midwest. Yeah. You know, she goes, I got this show coming. Uh uh, I want you to play my husband. Uh-huh. So I told everybody, I told yeah. my local newspaper, hey, the people that produce Cosby are producing Roseanne's show, and I'm going to play her husband. Yeah. Well, I didn't know how to act, and, and she just was, so I got out there, and I, and I realized, oh, I don't want to do this. This is, I can't do it. Uh, you know, I really want to be a writer. And uh, you're all jacked up? Yeah, I'm all jacked up, but, but uh, so we went in to meet them for sort of this weird audition, and John Goodman was also there, who was fucking amazing. I was yeah. like, there's no way, you yeah. know? There's no way. So I, I was so grateful to be a writer. Yeah. And as so, you know, and I, I was her buddy at first, which is also tough in the writing room when you're their buddy. Well, yeah, you got a bad rap all around. Yeah. You were, you were like her bitch from the yeah, beginning. Absolutely. Yeah. But you know what? I, the great thing about that is like, I was so proud of her. Yeah. You know, is my friend that had this huge, was so successful and she was amazing. And I yeah, have to no, say she this. she absolutely is. Yeah. This is why people are like, well, you know, she's fat or whatever. She was performing in Atlantic City. This is way before she was well done. And it was, they had all the beautiful, it was during the Miss America. Yeah. And they all came out with their things on. Yeah. And she stripped down to a bikini with a sash and yeah. did her set. And uh, <laughs> I thought, that is fucking, there's nothing sexier than some of that fucking ballsy. Yeah, yeah, And yeah. just turned it inward. She yeah. had no shame about anything. And that's really, you know, also the women I grew up with, we look, the men, we're different looking. We're not yeah. like in L.A. You know, yeah, yeah. this body image thing, the, how how fat somebody is is like the last thing on the list. Yeah, a problem. Yeah, <laughs> can they carry something? That's good. That's a good thing. So, you know, I was uh, I was crazy about her as a friend. Yeah. And then I came out and uh, 
I came out with my fiance. We packed up. We left Minneapolis. Oh, you had a fiance? In yes. The, in the middle of all that drug haze? Yeah. Oh, yeah, managed? yeah. Poor. I had a, a couple. Yeah. I had poor, poor women. And we move out. We got a little apartment in Van Nuys. And, you know, I'm going to write on the show. And then, uh, you know, shoot the pilot. And then there's a writer's strike and whatever. And my uh, fiance was Denise, very, very nice was a hairstylist and Roseanne came back from my going away shows in Minneapolis because that's when you make your money. Yeah. You're going away shows, right? Right, right. And uh, so she came back for them and, and my fiance did her hair. Yeah. And and she said at one point, she told me later, she said to Denise, what is Tom like in bed? Yeah. And she said when she looked in the mirror, she had like the Bride of Frankenstein hair after she was done because it's such a weird... I never thought she liked me like that. Yeah. I swear. And when she told me she did, it was the spring of, of 1989... You know, I mean, she said, you know, I, I love you. And I go, I love you, too. Yeah. And I, it just seemed like, oh, my God, because at the time, I'm not sure how many people liked us, either of us. Yeah. And it made perfect fucking sense to me. And I was, but the problem was, we used to party, and she partied. When she got together with me, we would do all the yeah, drugs. Yeah, sure. And she'd come, and we'd meet somewhere in the Midwest. We'd perform, whatever. And then she'd go back to her kids in her normal life. And so when I moved to L.A. She wasn't married still, was she? She was, it was at the, you know, Strange. Yeah. When I moved to L.A., um, one night uh, we went out, we went out with Goodman and uh, and Lori Metcalf, and I kind of, a uh, couple things funny happened. Roseanne and Goodman were kind of messing around a little bit in the front seat. This is during the shooting of the pilot, and Lori Metcalf and I were holding hands. I mean, I, I'm crazy about her now. And Roseanne told me the next day, oh, you can't hold hands with Lori. And I go, oh, why? She goes, because you're a writer, and writers uh, can't be in relationships with the actors. I uh-huh. go, she goes, that's a rule of Hollywood. I go, oh, I didn't know. Yeah. This is before I knew Roseanne liked me. Like, yeah, yeah. I go, oh, shit, I didn't know that. I will follow the rules of Hollywood. But one thing, that, that also the next day she said, you know, the drugs from last night, you know you know how we party when we get together? Yeah, yeah. You don't do that all the time, do you? And I go, <laughs> Yeah, I do. I do it. That's why I do it as much as I can. She goes, "Oh, well, you can't do that anymore." I go, "Really? Why?" She goes, "Well, it's bad. It's yeah. bad." Yeah. And I go, "Oh shit!" So it took me so long to move out of my apartment in Van Nuys because I I knew once I moved in with her in Beverly Hills, party was over. The party was over. Yeah. I'd rather be in that like, two bedroom apartment. Yeah. In Van Nuys with, yeah. with my drugs. Yeah. And my alcohol than to be Beverly for real. I mean, yeah. it, made, it wasn't even. So, well, there's probably a lot of reasons. I mean, yeah, even if your space is shitty, it's still your space. Right, that's very true. And you knew that walking into that, that you were going to be in the shadow. I was going to be in the shadow, but I was also going to be a stepfather, which kind of, which, which I actually loved. You know, that was kind of the big, you know. And, and the truth is, if I hadn't been there and, and she hadn't busted me for drugs and I hadn't come clean and whatever, all the things that happened, I mean, it saved my life. It saved me going genuinely into rehab to get well because the I, first time. Yes. Yeah. Um and staying it was funny because we it was such a big news story. You've we stayed sober since that outside the painkiller. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No hundred percent, hundred percent. Wow, that really yeah. took, huh? But here's the thing: in the middle of the painkiller thing, I took a twenty year cake, and then I I was kind of questioning myself because you could lie to yourself pretty good. Sure. And then I'm getting that twenty year cake, and Ashley and I are in, in uh, your new Shanghai. wife. Yeah, and uh, we've been together six years, and. I, at that time, I knew I was like, I am not sober, and so I told some friends and everything. I mean, you you will, you know, you. But the thing I didn't do, which is crazy, a lot of people do this. Once you realize you've relapsed, you're like, fuck it, I'm going to go back and do the shit. You know, since I'm going to sure, go to sure. rehab, I'm in. I'm yeah. in. And uh, if I'd have done that, I'd have been dead. Yeah, because it was a that. big problem. I did not do that. What stopped you? 
I don't know. I think lying to myself that I had it under control. And having control. that much recovery. Yeah, well, that's absolutely true. Yeah. Absolutely true. And to, to be honest with you, after the coma, yeah. after the, you know, when I came to and, and I had all these medical fucking horrible problems, I woke up, when I came to UCLA, Ashley was there and she said, I need to tell you something. You know, it took a few days. She said, I need to tell you something. And I go, what? She goes, I need to show you something. Because I hadn't looked down. And she shows me a mirror, and I can see that my whole stomach area and, and rib cage area was open. And uh, it was, they'd had to do emergency surgery, cut me open, and it was having to heal open. And they would come in uh, twice a day and trim, uh, it's called deep breathing, and trim the, the dead skin. And that's how it had to fucking heal. But I could see the inside of my body. It was crazy. And then they put a wound back on there, which is something they use for combat soldiers yeah. to get a shot. And that just devastated me that I'd done that to myself. Well, what the fuck? What? What? what that was from the accident? No, that was from. Uh, it, it, I had I uh, had a uh, blockage inside of me, and uh, my uh, intestine exploded. That's why you went into a coma. Yes, but and, it, what's that called when it, it, it polluted your system? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I was septic. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And the thing is, and the reason I mean, drugs. I am sure the pain meds wore down my insides sure but also you don't feel oh i feel something is going to explode you right i think that, that i was thinking back over the days before that Ugh. because i'd already and you were fat i was already, i was very fat i had already talked to a doctor so i got an addiction doctor and i told my sponsor and i had told people so i was on the road to getting well and then that happened Ugh. and so she shows me that and I, my heart just sinks that i'd done that i'm so fucking mad at myself this is what I did to myself by using this what and she goes I gotta show you one more thing and she shows me and I have a fucking colostomy on and I'm like oh my fucking my life is fucking over that is it I want to die right now and she goes the good news is this time it's temporary it's 90 days and so you know immediately I get a calendar out and start counting down that fucking 90 days because they had to seal the other thing up first before they could take down the colostomy so anyway I go right from UCLA to Betty Ford and uh, and my wife was so cool about it. She's like, well, you know, you could come home for a little bit or go to whatever, uh, you know. But uh, you know, I still was having to have a bunch of surgeries to do all this stuff. I go, well, maybe I'll wait till the surgeries are over. Anyway, she made it clear without, you know, that this would be a good decision for me to make. So I sit down there at Betty Ford, and it's a night, and I got this fucking colostomy, and I'm in the medical unit of that rehab, and and I got this open fucking wound, and it's I've ruined my life, and I'm embarrassed, and I've lied, and I'm fucking, I fucking, it was the darkest place, I could not figure out a reason to get it that it was worthy of getting it together, and I had to call my sponsor, and he said, well, you know all the good stuff you did for people via the program, whatever, whatever. Uh, during those 20 years that still counts yeah because <laughs> i thought well i'm a phony i'm a complete fraud yeah from you know i'm going around i'm going to meetings I'm, I'm sponsoring people i'm helping people i'm a liar i'm a phony whatever and he goes no the good stuff still and i needed to hear that at yeah, that yeah, fucking yeah, low yeah. moment because it was uh it was dark and it was just me yeah and that meant my shit and yeah and, and how long were you out on the painkillers the years or? well in in uh in 2006, I was uh, uh, did, I had a show called Best of Sports Show. Yeah. Period. Uh, 
and and I came back because they wanted to do a, a April Fool's joke on Michael Strahan. Yeah, and I was like, yeah, first of all, he's gonna know it's April Fools. It's fucking stupid. They go, well, we want you to pretend you wrote a book and named all the names that told all the backstage stories of all these people on the show with you, and we're gonna mock up the book, and you'll come on there and talk about it. And I'm like, that's so stupid. So I call Michael Strahan and go, listen, here's the deal. They want me to play a joke on you that I wrote a book and I talk about all the locker room stuff we've talked about all the years. I want you to pretend you don't know about it, and then and then let's get in a fucking real fist fight. Let's blow these fuckers away. So yeah. Chris Rose, the host, knows what's going on. So he doesn't know I talked to Strahan. Yeah. And the other guys don't know. So they're getting all pissies of describing some stuff. And they're like, oh, I think that's, I don't think that's a pro, whatever. Strahan starts getting in my face about, you know, locker room etiquette, you know what, whatever. And he, he it starts heating up. And I wonder how long they're going to play it before they go, surprise. And also, I sense they're going to say it because it get it hit, Strahan and I are swearing at each other. And uh, I stick my, I knew I had to activate him somehow. I stick my finger in his chest. He whips around, ends up, I end up with a fractured rib and a, and a cut above my eye, whips around, and I, and the other guys, these big fat, you know, Rodney Pete, yeah. who's awesome, and Rob Dibble type, but they weigh like 400 pounds. They're on top of me trying to break stuff. This is all live on the TV. And I flip him around be, be behind me, and he tears his pec. He had just sat out the season for the Giants for tearing his pec. He retore his peck. That's what we pretended. And so the director in the thing goes, fuck, he finally killed the show. Go to Black. So they went to Black, and then Michael Strahan got up and go, uh, April you know, April Fool's. Fool's. They were so mad, but it was like one of the few good April Fool's jokes. But I actually broke a rib. <laughs> so I got to, the doctor came down there, and I got some pain medicine, and I remember being at home, and I, and I, and I took one. And that was it. It wasn't it the motorcycle accident. And it worked. Yeah. No, I didn't start taking it a lot then, but that's where the first time it worked. Yeah. Because I'd had pain medicine before, and it, that was in the back of my mind. So when I had the motorcycle wreck on PCH, I yeah. broke my scapula, it was it was game on. Yeah. You know, and, and another thing, the, the ambulance came, and I, I, I've broken my right scapula. Fuck, it's so painful. And they said, you want something? I go, fuck yes. And they gave me a shot of fentanyl. And I was like, oh, that's it. Yeah. So that's why I get the heroin right, right, thing, right. because that was it. And so from eighty, from 2008 to 2010, it was yeah. every other month at least. And, it, we're, and you were married already to Ashley, or you weren't? I was going through a divorce, and, uh, and, but I met, uh, no, I, I, excuse me, Ashley and I just started dating. So, so okay, so you weren't married, and, and she right. married you in the middle of all this yeah, shit. Yeah, she married me in 2009. And then and then I mean, she, I kept it, I, I pretend, lied, and, and fucking bullshit. Right, but so that, so that dark time, yeah. all that was built up. Right. And it was just, uh, yeah. and the weight was on you, and you didn't want to live. Right. Ugh, awful. Right, awful. And it's awful for her that she marries a sober guy, and, and it turns that. out sober guy is not so sober after all. It's a scary thing, man. You know, it's like he had a lot of time, and, and, and I, you know, I go and I hear those stories about dudes, and I'm like, holy fuck! That's the scariest thing in the world. Yeah, is dudes with long term sobriety who, who either like say like maybe I can do this now, right, or they get fucked up on the painting. Yeah. that's always right. what it is. Right, maybe maybe I'm okay. Or I got a backache. Right. Or a back injury, right? right? Surgery. Because you, then you start negotiating every day. Is it hurting today? <laughs> I think it's hurting today. And, you know, I had a physical at UCLA last Thursday. Yeah. And I just remember before yeah. going to the hospital thinking, uh, well, I got one mission here. Uh-huh. Uh, it's convince, hopefully there is something wrong with me so I can get some pain medication. But I've got to convince this doctor, manipulate him yeah. into giving me something. Yeah. And, and this time it was like, geez, I hope I... 
you know, because I'd lost all this weight. I hope it's a good one, and it was great. And you know, it's a it's a hell of a way to live your life. And you're you're well. You got a couple years now. I got three. I uh, I got three years. I Jan, uh, August 2010 was my coma, but I had to have other surgeries in this in the fall. I had a total yeah. of seven. Yeah. And uh, I there was a couple times where I was managing my own pain medication, which I don't do at all now. Where I was a little loopy, and what actually happened was in August of 2011, or excuse me, in January, we got back from Hawaii, and I was taking, I I was on heavy stuff, and then also taking uh, Ambien, and I don't know, I'd stayed up all night, I was so loopy, and my friend uh, Kevin Zegers, this young actor, very nice guy, someone sent me a thing about his birthday, yeah, you know. And whatever, and 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 so I was like, this is in the middle of the night for some reason. I'm like riding back and whatever, and I called him a faggot. Yeah, and then I hit a reply all apparently. And Elton John is his uh, godfather, uh-huh. and Elton John and his husband David yeah. Furnish got that. Yeah, and so David Furnish writes back, I will kick your fat, sweaty fucking ass. I'm like. What the fuck, you man? We'll meet out here. And my wife has the ability to watch what I'm doing from upstairs on the internet. She comes downstairs and says, "What the fuck is wrong?" I go, "This motherfucker wants to fight me. I'm going to meet him at Cedar Sinai." She goes, "No, you're not." And then it, then I it started dawning on me how fuck crazy was. And I, I was like, "I got to do a hail mary." So I checked into UCLA uh, detox, uh-huh. and and I also did that lame bullshit fucking thing of. I don't know what was going on. Somebody had access to my computer. I, I tried that, but then I said, "Fuck it." I still got this issue. Yeah, you know, even though. Uh, so, so since then, it's been just over three years. <laughs> you're you're a fucking handful. Oh my god. Oh my god. <laughs> I mean, well, of course, a lot of people say that. No, no, I think you do. But I'm I'm pretty impressed with the idea that so with you and Roseanne, you know, you were on the show and that. That marriage, I guess, publicly didn't seem like it ended well. Right. Uh, did it ended it? terrible. Yeah, it did. Yeah. It was, uh, honestly, for the first three years out of the four and a half, it, I thought it was going to last forever. Because we had, mm. you know, there was the on-camera bullshit, yeah. which, right. which we also played into, obviously. Uh, that percentage was small at first in the marriage. And then the real stuff of being a stepfather and the kids and doing stuff, it's petty. But that the then the public stuff became a bigger percentage. And of what, the attention or the yeah, trouble? Yeah, What do you mean the public stuff? Well, I mean, it became more important where, you know, if you if everything's cool at home, you could handle a little whatever. Flack. Yeah. yeah. And, and two things happened. One, I started working outside of the Roseanne show. I did a movie called True Lies, a yeah. film for the seven months before With we- Schwarzenegger? Uh, yeah. Wasn't? Yeah. Jim Cameron directed it. And that was hard for her. Yeah. Um, in fact, well, she couldn't let she couldn't let go of the stage, or yeah. She, well, she said, I, "I." She was very honest, which I loved. I, I I can't handle you being getting this kind of success in this area. And uh, she was very honest, and she called Jim Cameron a lot. And said he's quitting because you know, we were way over. And, so she, she she was honest and trying to fuck your career. Yeah, 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 yeah. Well, she, that was nothing compared to what she did when she filed for divorce. But but you know, I think <laughs> we we both tried really hard. To make it work, and uh, I know she tried really hard, and I know I tried really hard, and and then you know I remember one day we were fighting, and and she just sat on the stairs and started crying and said, you know what, you did, you tried, and and you know I tried, and because it was always like nobody wants to end something, I want it to be her that ends it, and then I'm the victim, she wants the same thing, and uh, and and I, we should have ended it right there, but 
we went a little bit more and I remember I said we had a fight and I said I'm going to stay in the apartment she goes oh you're not staying I go I'll stay in the apartment I'll see you at the set and I came to the set and my uh, there was guards outside of my office and it was, she'd already done a press release that I was abusive I mean the shit that she said I did that I raped her that I abused her that I did all this stuff is so fucking crazy um, and then she this is so typical of the relationship. She called me and said, I'm so sorry. My lawyer made me do that. We reconciled publicly. This is all public. We're back together. And it was kind of big news. It was because of what was, the, where of the she accusation. was. the accusation. Yeah. And then uh, she she already had a trip planned to Europe. And I was filming my, uh, the show called Tom on CBS. Yeah, right. And I said, I can't shut the, I shut it down for a week so we could reconcile in Iowa at the farm. I can't shut it down. There's too many people depending on the job. I'll meet you in Europe. And, uh, and she was not happy with that. And then I heard a guy from the Inquirer called and said, she's holding hands with the bodyguard that you'd hired. Right. And uh, honest to God, I felt like such relief. Yeah. But I said, I got to see this for myself. First of all, no, I'm happy, but I'm pissed off at that guy because yeah. he fucking worked at Dunkin' Donuts and I hired him and now he's <laughs> holding hands with my wife. Which, <laughs> so I flew, my brother and I, my uh, gay brother Chris comes out, yeah. we fly, and the guy from the Inquirer is on the plane too because I said to him, this is what I'm he, You gave me that info. This is what I'm doing. You literally went there. We land in Rome. We get a, one bodyguard. Yeah. They're like, because she's in Sardinia. They go, you need to have a fucking bodyguard. Yeah. Okay. So we get one guy who's a captain in the police department. He has a gun. Yeah. He gets out. We land in Sardinia, and we're going to go to this villa and kind of scope out where she is, and I want to have this confrontation. And immediately our car's pulled over by three other cars. The guy's got machine guns, and they're like, she fucking wants to see you. So they take us up this long road. She comes out of there, and in the background, I see the bodyguard, Ben. Yeah, yeah. And she's like, uh, um, and my guy, I just got the one guy. Yeah. He's like, but uh, she goes, uh, <laughs> I go, just tell me, are you fucking Ben? Yeah. And she said, no, but she looked down, and I knew it. Yeah. And I so I had that, multiple, had that feeling of, oh, good, it can end now. But also, I fucking made a move at Ben. You know, they got all the machine guns. Ben's a giant fucking dude, but you know, you got to take a punch at him. You fucking got him. So we get back to our place. The, the, uh, what happened when he tried to take a punch at him? He he was scared. I'm going to tell you right now. There's <laughs> twice I've tried to take a punch at him. He's way bigger than me and way younger than he's an MMA. Once was in court where he came up behind me yeah. when we were having a, the thing and tried to be funny. I fucking whipped around and I could tell he was a little, <laughs> which he, you know he shouldn't be, but it, it felt good. And uh, <laughs> and so she, uh, so we get back to our place and yeah. I, I had this sense of relief somehow and and. Uh, I found out that the travel agent that booked our flight, it was supposed to be a secret. I'm going to surprise her, whatever. He fa- I got a fax that was to her from him saying, okay, here's what he's doing, whatever. So I realized he's been telling her the whole time. She knew exactly what I would land. She knew. So I called, my brother calls. People do anything for money. Right. Huh? Yes. He says, we're staying for a month. Yeah. He tells the guy. Because yeah. so, I know that'll freak her out if yeah. I'm staying here for a fucking month. And uh, and then we end, up, we end up leaving. But the... The guy, my bodyguard, the, the captain of the police department in, in Rome is so shocked because women do not, it's very, you know, man, yeah. women don't treat their man like that. That guy cheated on you. You know, we can have something done to them. <laughs> and he was like, totally serious. Yeah. And I go, no, I don't want anything done to her. I don't know. I go, what could you do to him? He goes, well, <laughs> well, when he goes back to Rome, we'll have him arrested and put him in pr- for drugs. We'll plant drugs on him. He'll be in prison for life. I go, no, 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 no. Then she'll want to reconcile. I go, no, no. Um, 
what about something else? A little what, what, for ten grand? What can we get? He goes, well, six guys will come off the thing, and then they'll rough them up, and they'll they'll miss their flight, and they'll take him. They'll do a body cavity search of this dude, whatever. And I go, will you take pictures of that and send it to me? He goes, absolutely. I go, done. So that happened. That happened. And they didn't hurt, touch her. But they gave him. A, he got a. He got the whole full. <laughs> full body. Yeah, yeah. He felt better. Yeah, and I felt better. More importantly. <laughs> so all right. So you, the, you went through the horrible divorce. Yeah. And and, and by he, the way, she called the day we got divorced. She called the presidents of each network and said, "If you ever work with him, you'll never work with me." And she was very powerful at the time. And and there were people that I'd brought out from the Midwest to give jobs to that could no longer speak to me. They made that choice, and I get that. I appreciate people that did continue to talk, but there was a line drawn, and if it weren't for the movie True Lies coming out, being a hit, having Jim Cameron go on TV and defend me, having Arnold Schwarzenegger, Maria Shriver say, no, actually, he's a good guy, I would not be sitting here talking to you. Yeah. Yeah. Now, has any of that, I mean, you obviously tried to get married two more times. Yes, I did. Stupid. The weekend True Lies came out back in 1994. I went to David Spade's birthday party. It's the only time I've been invited because I was really hot for like oh, yeah. a week. And uh, I love Spade, though. But uh, this girl who was a brother, whose brother was a friend with Spade, was visiting from Michigan. She was a college student, 20 years old. And I saw her, and I'm like, that's it. She's the opposite of everything I've known. She's going to be the wife and mother. I'm going to, you right. know, and yeah, I projected yeah, yeah. myself under her. I moved her out. I paid her student loans. I did whatever. And it wasn't, it was not no, was right. Not, yeah. And, and then I, when, and I did it again. The same kind of thing? But a little bit. Yeah. Like she, she's closer. right to have my little, kids. Okay, yeah, I mean, yeah, yeah. She's make a very nice better. person. Right. Whatever. Uh, you know, and uh, it's just, it, you know, and then I, with Ashley, I was done getting married. I mean, it's so yeah. fucking ridiculous. You've been married three times and and stuff. And uh, we had mutual friends. And we, the Passover uh, six years ago. This you still know, practicing Judaism. I mean, I've lightly. Yeah. You know, but you still identify as a Jew. Yeah. Huh. Yeah. Whatever. I'm not religious, but I I will do it. But in this, they said, "Well, why don't you guys go out? You know, you're both single." And and so she and her sister called her. She called me, and her sister met and her met me at a restaurant. And we talked, and at a certain point, her sister broke off, and we went upstairs and, uh, you know, slowly got to know each other. And, mm-hmm. uh, you know, she's pretty Naturally, amazing. Naturally. It yeah. wasn't like this freaking frenetic, yeah. desperate no, thing. Yeah, no, desperate. And I I've, I'm made a lot of mistakes, and those are two of my biggest ones. Well, let me ask you, uh, have any of those, are you and Roseanne on any kind of terms? I heard from her in maybe October. I mean, uh, you know, uh, I did her roast. Um, which I thought went perfect, and then I wanted to get out of there because it went perfect, and and obviously they needed me to be there, or they wouldn't have asked. Um, to, there was a couple texts back and forth. We honestly hadn't seen each other for eighteen years when I did a roast; had been in the same room. So um, then I tweeted something last spring, and she took offense to it. It wasn't even about her; it was about cleaning out my garage. And she started hammering me on Twitter, and I thought, well, "That's crazy." She doesn't get that as a joke, so I started fucking with her back, and it became this huge thing where everybody started participating. But it was I was joking. I was I said I, I cleaned out my garage and I'm going to Goodwill. I've got 39 remote controls and 42 phone chargers and my old wedding videos. Yeah. And then she went, "How dare you? My children are on those wedding videos." And I oh, go, God. "Hey, listen, you could still buy them for a dollar." And so she didn't get the joke, but it's fine. It's all good. And then it was really nice this fall. She wrote me and said, um, "It was a Sunday night." She said, "I'm in trouble." Uh, I don't have a third act. I have to have a script in for NBC tomorrow morning at whatever time. And if I don't, they're going to fire me. 
I need a third act. This is like midnight on a Sunday night. I'm this in bed when? with my wife. This is October. Really? Yeah. yeah. And so I look at that. And I'm like, all right, let's do it. So I go downstairs. I get on my computer. We went back and forth all night. And it was like the old fucking days, man. Yeah. It was like the best of the best from 30 years before. The well, best of what you guys were. Yeah. 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 That's sweet. Yeah. And I do have to say this about writing jokes for her. When we became a couple couple, uh, right before that, uh, she said to me one day, yeah, um, too many fat jokes. Mm. I go, well, you're so good at them. I, and I, I realized later she liked me now. Mm. And me writing all those t- fat jokes about for her, about yeah. her, oh, yeah, she feeling. was like, yeah, I didn't even think. I thought, they're just yeah. funny, man. You just got to yeah. know. But when you, you look at somebody different when you like them. So you have a certain amount of uh, closure and acceptance around I this. think so. Yeah. Think and what about those writers that, that turned on you? Yeah. Whatever I I because of the have program, any of them come back around? I mean I mean sure I, sure my business manager came back around. He was he was our business manager. Did you split the, the money? No no. Here's what happened. People say I got fifty billion dollars and it's pu- public record. I had no alimony. I took no alimony yeah. because I I assumed oh my god I made true lies. I'm going to make all these other movies and yeah. make me, and and I just why don't want to have guy? to yeah, yeah why be that guy? We had two houses and we divided those up. That was a total oh okay thing yeah um and that was it. Yeah, yeah. it's public record, which is weird because people always say, well, people "Oh, he got all his money." They just want to fucking yeah. cause trouble. But I also didn't want to be here twenty years later talking to you and go, "Yeah, I got, I took all this money." Yeah, you know. Although there are times when I go, "Fifty million dollars," but no, not at all. But it, it was your pride that stopped you. It was my pride and my ego that I thought, yeah. "Well, fuck, I'm going to make." Yeah. Many, many millions. And, and I did make some money. And you wanted to detach a little bit Absolutely. From well, yeah. I would have had to go to court and say, I suck. I'll never work again. <laughs> she would have had to go to court and say, he's amazing. He's brilliant. That would have been funny. Yeah. But you know what? It was I, I could tell that the, the proceedings were dragging her down. Uh, the lawyers were making a lot of money. And um, so I just said, that's it. Well, you're a survivor, dude. Yeah. And uh, you know, I'm, I'm thrilled that, uh, at your sobriety and at your new kid, and it's a great thing. It is great. You know, Right you know. now, it's really great. Yeah, good. It's crazy. Good. And you're touring? Yeah, I am. Uh, I love it. You know, I, I don't like traveling, but you know, it's it's the, the one thing, and I feel it makes me a better actor, a better mm-hmm. writer. I love doing stand-up, and I love going to these towns that I probably wouldn't get to go to and, and, and doing this. And people this coming out? Yeah, they're coming out. Are they? It's so great. Yeah, that's great, man. They're selling out, and you know, it's it's hard work, as you know. Yeah. And I do that thing. You know, everybody has T-shirts or DVDs. Yeah. I have some T-shirts for my heart. I have a heart camp, a Camp Del Corazon for kids that had heart transplants and major heart disease. It's the only one like in the country out in Catalina, and we never said no to a kid. And I use that sort of a, I do a joke about these shirts that my wife made. But I say, you don't have to buy a shirt. I will sign everything. I'll take a picture with literally everybody. Yeah, I mean, yeah. And like 150 people that, between yeah. shows. Yeah. yeah. And, but you also have these moments where they go, Hey, I loved you on Mark Maron, or yeah. I, I, you know, I got sexually abused when I was a kid, yeah. or you know, because they know a lot about my personal life. Well, you become you. a survival story, right? And and you know, and a lot of people feel isolated in their problems, right? And they don't think there's hope for them. And you know, a guy like you is taking every hit possible, right? <laughs> and I also feel it's important to talk about, yeah. that. I mean, when you talk about being on drugs, people label you a drug addict all the time, yeah. And they assume no matter what they see me on, if I'm at all have any energy. He's on coke. They don't know that the, the what I, how I was doing coke. There, I would be so dead. You wouldn't be able to you talk. Know. No, I wouldn't be able to talk. But I'd be dead. I mean, I was killing. I was killing myself. Thanks for talking. Tom. Thank you, buddy. That's it. That's our show, folks. See, 
I don't know, whatever you may think, that he's a compelling guy. He's a genuine guy. Uh, he's a fast talker. It's a lot of information, a lot of emotion. Uh, you know, if, if it's a con job, uh, I'm in. Uh, I, I, I feel uh, I feel closer to Tom, and I feel that, uh, that I got a new respect for the guy. He's definitely a persistent survivor, a guy willing to change. I enjoyed having him here. And please go to WTFPod.com for all your WTF pod needs. For all you newbies who are just getting into the show, you can get that free app, upgrade the premium app, and stream all 450 or however many I've done episodes. You can do that. You can do that. You can leave a comment. Dude, I'm tired, man. Boomer lives. <laughs>